Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Hello, and welcome to the Queer SLP. It's been a minute. (laughs) But here we are. We are here. And thanks for being here with us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Hector, how are you? So I'm trying to remember the last time we checked in, if I had already announced it, that I'm engaged to my partner, who is not an SLP. (laughs) And um, we, you know, we've just been busy enjoying that not getting married until like 2024 like july-ish area so giving us significant amount of time so been doing that i've been enjoying a new role as an slp as like more of like a leadership role which is Mm -hmm. so weird um it's very much like more on the console and manager side of things Mm -hmm. um and like helping to support a hundred SLPs with all different, like not just like pedagogy, but also like just different sets of values <laughs> and yeah, practices yeah. is so interesting because you know they don't teach you that in grad school, but it's definitely an experience that I'm I'm starting to learn um, more and more. I'm also very much like, oh, that's how you would do that, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I support you. That's totally fine. That's how you would do it. Um, mm-hmm. But. It's interesting to see how different we all are. Um, just yeah. SLP to SLP, even within like a, a city like Seattle. So there's that. Also, um, pottery has been great. I don't know if I told you this, Natalie, but like, so for our wedding, our wedding favors, we are making um, mugs for Aww. the uh, right. So and. <laughs> Like, we're trying to make 150 (laughs) mugs in two years. And as, like, not... I'll call us novice potters. Like, it's... That's quite an undertaking because pottery is, like, the slowest That's how many people you're going to have at your wedding? That's the goal. Yeah. I mean... That's big. I know. But it's also, like, I'm the baby, he's the baby, and, like, we're the last ones in both of our families getting married. So there's, like, a lot of this, like, people are looking forward to it, but also I think everybody wants to just go to a gay wedding, Um, you know? (laughs) I guess it's a hot ticket. It's a hot ticket. They're like, oh, look, a gay wedding? (laughs) A gay wedding? Count me in. Uh, Can't wait. I bet you guys will have great music. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so, yeah, we're doing that and living the pant life um, and enjoying, or, like, the Seattle weather (laughs) as it quickly shifts to winter over here so yeah what about you how are things going over on the east coast oh gosh they're easty um well i mean (laughs) as far as like the weather like it's it's becoming winter here too like we had a really beautiful october Mm -hmm. and i like you have been doing a lot of the crafting and hobby stuff like um a lot of crocheting and uh, Andrea and I went to the Sheep and Wolf Festival in Rhinebeck. And if there's any knitters out there, they know this is a huge deal. It's like this really big festival with sheep and um, 
yarn vendors and classes and stuff like that. And it's really fun. So is it like the only one in the world? No, there's other ones, but this one's a big one. Oh, how um, fun. It was super fun. We, we really enjoyed it. And we rented a house with a bunch of people that we didn't know, but um, <gasps> kind of um, someone, someone that in our crafting group here in our town was like, Oh, I'm going to this festival. I'm renting a house with some people I know from Philadelphia. And so we ended up in this, um, in this huge house. There's like 20 of us in this giant house. And um, it was just an absolutely perfect um, fall activity. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, How much yarn I, did you buy? Um, I, I was trying to be conservative with it, but I probably what spent $300. <laughs> Conservative. conservative. <laughs> um, you know, because they're these, they're like indie dyers and like small right. batch, um, you know, so like a skein of yarn can be like $30. Um, what is a skein? It's like a... Is like the weight or length? Um, no, it's just the, it's like a little um, hanky doodle. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like, it's the amount of yarn. Like if you walk into okay. a yarn shop... And they're all in like little bundles. People mm-hmm. call that a skein of yarn. Oh, okay. Yeah. Learn something new. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so there's that. You know, I, I like professionally, I've sort of just kind of letting things ride. Um, yeah. I have a couple of private clients and I'm doing my half part time um, preschool stuff. And, um, you know, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like (laughs) I I think it's like, okay, I'll just be transparent. Like this is like one of the hardest years to start. Like if you work in the schools, I don't know if anybody else feels the same way, but at least where I'm at, like the amount of referrals that are coming in are crazy because I think either we're just catching kiddos now because of COVID or people are waited until they were like, okay, well, you're for sure not using masks or anything. So can can yeah. you take a look at my kiddo? And so people are hurting out there. And it's, yeah. you know, as a leadership role, it's so hard to just sit in that and be like, I don't really know <laughs> how to help you other than right. like giving you a space to, to share. But also at the same time, like it's a systemic issue, you know, like, yeah. So it's it's tough, and I think a lot of people are feeling that because I mean we all experience that. It's like a collective traumatic experience, and now that we're like seeing the results of that, I'm like I would love to yeah. see the longitudinal studies of oh they'll happen outcomes. Yeah, yeah. of course, right? They'll They're happen. like, what was the yeah. result of that? You know, lack of like early intervention and lack of you know right. like upward socialization. It's like we- we can look at it without actually withhold, like actually withholding services from anybody because it just sort of happened organically. Right, exactly. So. We're like, what did you? Because it, what it was just it would like? be. I think it would be unethical to be like, well, this kid is delayed, but we're not going to serve them and see what happens. You know, right? Just like, or oh, on the flip side of like, oh, look at are these language or pragmatic even delays due to, you know, lack of opportunity. Or did they, mm-hmm. were they there already because of an underlying delay? 
that was right. due to a disability, right. you know? And so it's just a, such yeah. an interesting conundrum to, to unpack because inherently you'd think that, well, we all lacked that opportunity and experience. So therefore, should we all qualify for services? Right. <laughs> it's this so. difference versus disorder. And like, how do you tease that out? Yeah. And, you know, some, you know, some of the preschool kids, like I just had a, a new kid added to my caseload who his whole world up until coming to school was his mother. Like he, he didn't have any interaction with the outside world because of COVID. Right. And it's just like, so he, I mean, he's obviously very stressed um, because it's just, everything is new. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine how hard that must be for this little guy who, you know, has so many issues and then like is plopped into a, a world he didn't know existed. Like with all of these like, expectations, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, why do we even have social expectations at this point? Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. To be Let's honest, just throw, throw those expectations throw out the out. window. <laughs> like until uh, we like catch up after two years or whatever that was. Yeah. Like, and, I don't yeah. Even and know. on that note, I you know, I mean, it has been a while since we've had a podcast released. Right. I would say and so. It, yeah. Yeah. You know, it ebbs and flows. <laughs> and, you know, I hope I hope everyone out there gives us a little grace because we just we're like you, we're just trying to get through the world and we know we're inconsistent, but you know, that's just kind of how we roll and you know, if we have a guest come on or if we have an idea, we're just going to do it, but it's been a hot minute, I think for us. It's the two of us running this ship fully funded by ourselves yeah. as well yes um, so again <laughs> we don't have we a staff be... we don't <laughs> we have, have, well, a we have staff. an editor we have one, you know. we have an editor that we pay ourselves yeah and that's it i mean not you know we're definitely mo- leaning more towards accepting help from vol- volunteers but yeah you if, know, you, it's just one of those... if you want to get experience in podcasting or social media and you want to um, volunteer to you know put that on your resume or whatever um please reach out to us we would love to have help. Yes, because we need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm not, a, I'm not above asking for help. So anyway, with anyway, that should we in talk mind... <laughs> now that we've talked for a while? Should we talk about our guest? I think so because this one is a doozy in so many ways. It's, it's exciting. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. It's, um, yeah. it's so many things wrapped into one and we hope that you're in a space to be open to this conversation that we're going yeah. to be having um and recognize like whatever emotions that do come up because of this podcast that mm-hmm. you're able to reflect on your own practice but also just kind of hopefully be able to take something away from it um as well yeah it's it you know, there there's some conversations um, that will challenge your assumptions, especially in the second one. Yeah. Um, the second episode of this is a two-parter. But I think that it's important for us to challenge our assumptions. And like Hector said, be in a space to have your assumptions challenged. Recognize those emotions that come up and, you know, try to learn from it. I know that I learned some things from our conversation with this with this guest and um it's okay it's okay to have your assumptions challenged and it's okay to have feelings about it right and also like let's be honest if you're listening to the queer slp you're open 
to having yeah. and Natalie will say this in the podcast, but like having your feathers ruffled. <laughs> you you wouldn't be yeah. here if you um wanted to keep your head in the sand, hypothetically. Yeah. This so, is how we learn and, and grow. We you know we challenge ourselves, we have our feathers ruffled. Um mm-hmm. and I think that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, it will be. <laughs> it, w- it will be. Um, it will be. I hope that everyone enjoys it. it. It was a fun conversation. Definitely. So our our guest is Nicole Grass. She they. She is a speech language pathologist and also transgender voice coach from the Undead Voice. Yes, the Undead Voice. A little play on words. Yeah, you know, which is that was something that was new. I I had never heard of. Um, like dead naming somebody until we met AC. Um, So it's a play on that. It's a play on, on, you know, that term. So right. um, Right. Undeading your voice. No zombies. (laughs) No no zombies. Um, I I think I took some low, at some point I I did take some low hanging fruit and I was like brains, but I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry, people. (laughs) Don't apologize. Don't apologize. When are you going to ever have a zombie pun available for you? (laughs) I mean, just like that was, it was, we all, we recorded this in October and uh, I had, I had Halloween on the brain. It was appropriate. Culturally appropriate for the United States for Halloween. (laughs) Well, hopefully you all enjoy uh, their great and we hope that you continue to be great as well. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And with us today, we have... Hi, <laughs> I'm Nicole, and my pronouns are she, they. Awesome. Welcome to our little podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're <laughs> really excited. This is part one in our two-part series about Nicole and we are just so excited to get to know Nicole and kind of why don't we just start from the beginning like tell us a little bit about where you come from and and kind of your gender identity and kind of explore that a little bit as well so we get a good idea of who you are sure um born in Houston Texas (laughs) only was there for less than two years and then moved to the Midwest um from Southern Illinois like a suburb of St. Louis about 10 10 miles east of St. Louis and so I grew up in the same town my whole life until um I was finishing my undergrad in speech pathology and took a visit out to the West Coast to see a childhood friend of mine who had moved to San Francisco as a gap year between medical school just to live the life and fell in love with it very quickly and then even tried to transfer or considered transferring for the last year of my undergrad, which is bonkers. I just needed to have some patience. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up only applying. This was a wild decision as well to not apply to my alma mater for grad school. As most of us know, speech pathology is so competitive. So it's usually people go where they went their undergrad, they go to a grad school. I applied only to West Coast schools and ended up um, getting accepted to an accelerated grad program at UOP, University of the Pacific, which is about an hour or so east of San Francisco, and then moved there and did all of my schooling, uh, focused mainly on medical SLP stuff. And then I moved to the city as soon as I graduated back to the city. It was kind of, I was living there on weekends. So I just stayed <laughs> in the city 
and started working at a private practice in a hospital and medical SLP world. And then um, through both of those positions, I was introduced to a lot of like the trans community through voice work. And then personally, I'm queer. So it was a nice community in San Francisco to hang out with as well. It was a lot different than where I grew up. Not that it wasn't an affirming place to live. It just really wasn't a common conversation, I would say. (laughs) I felt really included and free in the city and kind of like I had found a settled place. When I was growing up, I always thought that I would live in New York City just because it was the biggest city I could think of. Then I got to the West Coast and I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> We're going to stay here. <laughs> and I've been there, been there ever since. Um, gender identity wise, I would say, you know, I'm not so certain how other people experience gender dysphoria. Um, for me, it was not something I put a lot of internal focus on. Um, really into therapy, have been doing a lot of like self-awareness, reflection, uh, work. I had some really intense anxiety in my early 20s that I started to see therapists for in college and then um, tried to work through some of that. So therapy was not something that was foreign to me. Um, it was actually in a therapy appointment that I was starting to explore my own gender identity. And I think kind of weirdly a pivotal moment for me, I was, I was guest blogging for a queer gender clinic Part of that was talking about my program and who I am and why I'm doing the work. And I submitted that guest blog on staff for them. They had somebody who edited it with me. And so in the edit, this editor added a line that said, as a cisgender woman doing the work, blah, 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 uh, just kind of assumed and put in my identity for me. And then I read that back when I was going through the edits and it was just like this visceral screaming, no, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. really loud, really intense. No. Um, And I had been leading up to that point and conversations with friends and also just with my partner as well, internally a lot for about a little over a year by that point. Um, But it wasn't until I saw in writing this concrete statement about my identity that wasn't written by me and didn't come from me that I was able to really identify that I didn't identify (laughs) as what I had taken unquestioningly for my life up until that point. Well, until like a year prior to that. And I talked to my therapist about it and I found a lot of my concern wasn't with my identity or being scared of it or scared of stepping into it. It was more um, not wanting to be seen because I was well on my way into doing gender voice work. was not wanting to be seen as opportunistic or pandering or as though it was um, convenient, if you will. And she quickly was like, that makes no sense. <laughs> that makes no sense. Like, let's get outside of your job and just talk about you as a human, um, which is hard to separate sometimes, especially at that point, I was working 17 hour days. and That's all I was focusing on. And I think it's taken some reflection to realize like my identity as gender fluid is like the discovery of it is or 
acceptance of it or exploration of it. Cause I wouldn't say that it's, you know, something that's new that's popped up. I've never felt as though I've um, fit into any sort, sort of like cultural stereotypical mold of what a quote unquote woman uh, should be. So that's my entire life, <laughs> but um, doing work for creating curriculum around gender voice helped me to um, have a really safe space to start fun space to start exploring um, how I felt whenever I sounded different, how I felt whenever my voice darkened a bit, how I felt whenever I allowed myself the freedom to not put myself into a box that I wasn't creating for other people either. And it really sparked the connection between this otherness I had felt my whole life and my gender identity. And once I said it to myself, to my therapist, to my partner, to my best friend, <laughs> to other people who were in the community that I was just networking with, I was finding myself saying it really easily and very proudly. Um, and it, it probably wasn't until I maybe went back to the Midwest for this past summer for um, my mom's birthday, which I try to return for every year because those things are important. Um, that I felt the discomfort that could exist. And I had to kind of press back against that when seeing people from my past that don't know me now, or when even seeing some of my family that's more conservative and will this come up? Does this not come up? And it, it, I mean, I think, you know, that's something that maybe I worried about on, on meeting because nobody walks up to you and says, what are your pronouns? Um, I think, well, I mean, people who do have well intentions usually. Um, but in this case, it was more of what I do is unique in that it's not something that's been asked about or that it's not something that is commonly, um, it's not like, hey, I'm a lawyer, <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, so when somebody is talking to me or catching up with me, they usually ask what I'm doing and I proudly tell them what I do. And then, Often it evolves into a conversation about gender because uh, usually the response is, I didn't even know this existed. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know anybody did this. Right. So we're going to get into this in the next episode, but just very briefly, can you tell people what you do? Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. I'm a speech pathologist, obviously, and I have an online gender affirming voice company. So I help trans non-binary gender questioning folks find a voice that aligns with their identity. Very exciting. It's called Undead Voice. And it's, yeah, it's definitely uh, like life meets art type of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it feels very enmeshed in all of the moments of my existence. Yeah, it sounds like there's like this kind of blend of the professional and the personal, and it was kind of happening simultaneously, you know, which doesn't always happen. Sometimes we just have this like herky jerky, sometimes. The personal yeah. is happening and the professionals on the wayside, but it sounds like it was happening at the same time and they were feeding into each other in a very interesting way. Yeah. And I had this like, now that I look back on it, it, it really wasn't necessary, but I think I've always been overly, you know, how you have like self-awareness, like people have self-awareness, but I have like Hopefully. an analyzer of my, yeah, <laughs> I've developed this like hyper analyst of my analyst, right? So I have like somebody analyzing my self-awareness almost sometimes just, you know, not wanting to leave any stone unturned, being really um, passionate. Are you a Libra? I'm, no, I'm a Taurus. <laughs> Taurus, Taurus. Okay. Taurus. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the cusp. So I'm a Gemini and a Taurus. 
Okay. Yeah. Someone I don't know anything think about. <laughs> okay, I know. Someone's next gonna have to something to say about that. <laughs> um, sure? I have a question. Um, yeah. As you're like, you know, you're doing the work. You're working with individuals, helping them to find their voice. During that time, do you, can you think about the first time that you ever experienced gender euphoria? Yeah, I mean, it's when I learned to lower my larynx. Yeah. So. There's two things I've always been told my entire life. One, you talk too fast. Cool. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> are told that. Um, and two, I like you're really outgoing. You're really outgoing. You're really social. You're really extroverted. And I'm like, okay. And it, it, it's hard because I don't identify as extremely extroverted. And it wasn't until I was able to kind of find a little bit more of a darker, thicker tone that I realized it was my voice a lot of times. Ah. Like if I'm talking pretty animatedly, even if I'm like not talking about something super outgoing, it's interpreted as though that's like my personality. Um, and so being able to find like here is, is more where I'm comfortable speaking. And this voice when I'm speaking doesn't necessarily yell super extroverted. Um, I don't know if that's a weird answer to that question. No, that's a perfect uh, answer. Okay. Where you just I felt, just, uh, uh, I don't even know how to explain to others that feeling of gender euphoria, but we often talk about it for individuals that, you know, identify as trans or non-binary that like that feeling of like, just finally that euphoria that you experience finally feeling in your, your, that your expression matches, you know, how yeah. you feel. Um, and so like the fact that you identified it with like the lowering of your larynx, right. Which is a very tangible thing. Um, yeah. It's such a, it's a cool thing that as an SLP, you can like also relate that to your own personal journey. So I, I, that's awesome. I think, I think a lot of our listeners will, will definitely get that answer. So. Yeah. I think we all want to be seen for who we are or like, um, don't want to be misinterpreted. I, I imagine most of our uh, anxiety in the world is that we're being taken wrong or that we're going to be um, misunderstood and that you don't have control of how others interpret you. And I think when your voice doesn't match how the you feel or people get a impression of you based on something that you don't think that you have the control over, it can be one of those like really difficult um confusing things. And I never understood what it was until I was able to manipulate my voice in a way that I was like, Oh, <laughs> and start, started getting different feedback. Like now, if somebody met me for the first time, I don't think I'd have the same. Um, I don't give the same impression more so because my voice communicates who I truly am or truly know to be as opposed to, I don't know, stereotypical assumptions based on my voice. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. I have a follow-up question not related to necessarily gender identity or expression. You made a very interesting SLP note that I wanted to ask was, and Natalie, this question goes to you as well. You said that most undergrad individuals go to the master's program like at their own school. And I find that so intriguing mm -hmm. because one, accurate, <laughs> but I was also like, even when I was going through my grad school, like application experience, I was told it wasn't even yeah. worth it to try at certain schools because they don't accept people from their <laughs> own outside of their own program. And so I'm just curious if that's like, if that truly is like a common occurrence for most people going like, is through. that so they were all told yeah, yeah. yeah. like is, are we all told that did we all experience that because I, I totally am so curious what like, I mean, we, let's start with you, Nicole, like, was that 
totally what you were also informed about? Yeah, we had like a... Um... Like we all had, you know, our like advisors and they were all a professor. And so as soon as I kind of gave them my spreadsheet of places I was thinking of going, that was the first thing that was told. They're like, you know, and I think there's probably a bunch of different um, reasons behind it. But the people who the school that the grad school I ended up going to, we had like a research studies course. Was I'm sure most of us did. Uh, we had to put like a re- proposed research study and submit it to the IRB, et cetera. And two of the individuals did a survey for grad schools, asking them what they weigh most criteria-wise on their admissions. And so we got a little bit of insight. And I think the main consensus there is that the reason some grad schools prefer to accept most of the majority of their grad programs from their undergrad is because it's they're not unknown. They know those people. And so it's not... I mean, we're all very high achievers. Most people look very similar on resumes, but you don't know what they actually are like in person. And if you have professors who already know the students, then they have an idea of what they're like clinically. And so maybe it's two-sided. One side would be, you know, clinically, they can trust that the patients who are coming in would get a certain level of care, or they could entrust that care to the people there. They're already confident would make great clinicians instead of an unknown. And then the other piece I imagine has to be a little bit more due to like praxis passing rates, um, GPAs, like standings of grad programs, you know, like the program that I went to, they would tell us nobody has failed the practice in 20 years. Good luck. <laughs> Basically don't fail. And they were known for that, that they had like a really high passing rate for the practice. And we took it three months into our curriculum. We didn't take it at the end of grad school. We took it. Well, maybe a little bit more than three, maybe five months into our program, we took the Praxis before we'd had like the majority of our coursework even. And so I think there's something to be said about wanting to make sure that the people you're accepting into the program are a known quantity so that you have some assurance that they will uphold the reputation of the school as well. Yeah. Natalie, what about you? Well, I have a, I have a question for Nicole before I answer my own opinion. Um, when, <laughs> what year did you apply to grad school? 2014 2014 maybe 23rd 2014 my program was fast I graduated in 20 I graduated my grad program in 2015 so just a year later yeah so somewhere in the mid 2010s okay (laughs) so um I have a little bit of a different perspective and I don't know if it's because of um it might be a generational thing so I applied to graduate schools in 2000 Um, And I started my program in 2001. So it was quite a while ago. I'm like, oh my gosh, next year I'll have been (laughs) a speech therapist for 20 years. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) At some point, we had a very long conversation about how I feel. Um, (laughs) Anyway, it was, I had the opposite of experience. Oh. I did not feel any kind of like... No one ever said to me, oh, you need to apply to your grad program. That's like your best choice Um, or like that's where you're most likely to get in. I actually got waitlisted to my in my undergrad. I applied it, applied Mm -hmm. to it and I got waitlisted. And but I got into all the other schools I applied to, which were not my school. But I feel like since I've gone to grad school, a lot has changed. Like it's become more competitive. Um, You know, I did not have a 4.0 GPA. (laughs) Not even close. Um, 
And the grad program that I went to didn't have an undergraduate program. It was grad school only. Mm. Um, so they didn't have any, like, knowing the students. I'm using air quotes again because I do that. But, you know, there was no <laughs> knowing the students. Yeah. You know, that it was just a graduate program. And I've worked with a lot of graduate, you know, a lot of grad student interns in my career and almost all of them have gone to different schools than they did for undergrad. So, you know, I don't know any research behind that or whether, you know, whether or not there is a commonality, but my experience has been so different from yours. So I don't know. I mean, Hector, you want to be our tiebreaker? Well, you know, the funny thing, so Nicole and I applied at the same time year like when I I got into grad school in 2014 as well um and so I think so I applied to you know like three different schools um I was told to expect to not get into at least two of those schools specifically because they weren't likely to accept people from outside of it so I don't think it's like a matter of like I I think people apply all the time to different places, right? And there's like a chance you'll get it. But I think there is definitely certain schools have a reputation for only accepting their own students, which is like interesting and problematic all at the same time. Um, Because, you know, you you create a homogenous, you have a a type, you know, and you don't, you may not realize how much of that bias creates in like, Again, like we talk about like getting more diverse SLPs in there. If you're if you're stuck on your scores, if you're stuck on like knowing who what kind of clinician you're going to get in, you're going to probably turn away a lot of those people that yeah. myself specifically, I was a postback student. So like we don't have that time to really build those relationships to in order to like show what we got, you know, like and so yeah. I think a lot of us especially now like there's a ton of like online postback programs that people are attending just to get their courses in and Credits. so yeah yeah exactly and so it, it creates this interesting like situation where like people like to be protective of their programs but there, there's also some gatekeeping happening there whether that's you know aware aware or not you know so um but yeah. yeah so that was my that was definitely my experience was knowing that i i they were like don't even try was and again that wasn't necessarily from the specific you know individuals in that program but it was just like people would say you know don't even like from mm-hmm. the forums all the you know like those little the grad cafe the worst thing in the world i've heard about uh, this thing before we've talked about it before i'm so glad this horrible. thing did not exist in 2000 yeah. oh. <laughs> it sounds yeah you terrible. missed it yeah. you missed the anxiety that that creates for any you make a- soon to be <laughs> speech therapy like it's make or break it's so bad um you make a really valid point around um diversity because i would imagine not i mean i don't know the statistics but not all people who go into their undergrad have an idea that they want to be speech pathologists and i i mean colleges for deciding and kind of defining what you want to do and so i would imagine a lot of people go local for their undergrad and then you go local for your undergrad and you apply to grad school, then demographically, then a lot of the students at those schools are local. And so you're not getting, you know, like movement from state to state or over state lines even. And it's even as interesting as like, 
I mean, I'm from the Midwest and we take ACTs in high school. We don't take SATs. That's more of like a coastal East Coast and West Coast take AC or take SATs. And so if like, even in the, uh, I had to take all of these it, to go to a school in California, you had to take all of these like uh, really basic tests for grad school that showed that I had high school level skills that they need it was in their curriculum. It was oh, interesting. It's like an interesting, interesting crossover. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and my huh. grad program also has a post back, and the post back is um, the post back is two years for the whole thing. You do the first year is your undergrad, the second year is your grad, so it's like two years to get through your entire post back and grad school program. And there was, I think, the year I applied, like four hundred and sixteen applicants to my grad program, and they took maybe thirty, and only nine of them were from a different a school that wasn't their undergrad. Nine of us, the rest of us from another place, and. Uh, yeah, it got to the point where when I made the list as well, well, this is probably not relevant. My brother, <laughs> my brother uh, just graduated this fall as a speech pathologist. Wait, what is it? Oh. October. This spring, sorry, this spring as a speech pathologist. And so nice. I went through his whole process of applying to grad school. He went to University of Washington here in Seattle um, the first year and a half of it online because of COVID. And I was with him every step of the way of applying to the schools, et cetera, et cetera. And he applied to all of the top like five schools, like all of the best schools. And he went to his undergrad in central Florida and he got in everywhere, which he is a great, brilliant human. He's also a man. <laughs> so um, I'm wondering, did was he inspired by your profession or was it completely independent of like, how did he end up choosing SLP? Yeah, he's older than I am. And oh, okay. so when he decided he wanted to go back to school, he had originally thought computer science. And then I think he was just trying to find like what field was interesting to him. And then also there was career security, you know. Um, and then it was a random Christmas. Uh, we were both back home in the Midwest visiting and because we moved to different places really early on, like right after high school, we, we kind of both left states, <laughs> left the state and didn't live around each other very often. It was one random Christmas we were visiting and he started asking me about my specialty in acquired neurogenic disorders. And I started talking through, you know, what it's like to rehabilitate a traumatic brain injury or a stroke um, victim, teaching them language again, all of the different intricacies and think it was very interesting for him and from that he started looking into speech pathology more and then decided to pursue it so he went back and he had associates at the time so he went into this undergrad in central florida and then he got into the medical slp program here in washington and now he's graduated and looking for a cf in a medical position but long story short yes i think he wouldn't have ever um gone down that road if he didn't know me <laughs> didn't know about the field for <laughs> me that's yeah. so cool I so and now I'm doing something yeah. completely different. <laughs> yeah. But that leads me to my next question is how did you choose SLP? How did I get into it? Yeah. Well, um the earliest I can remember knowing uh like technically about the field, I was like a sophomore in high school and knew I had like not really a super clear idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, which I'm a sophomore in high school, you don't need to, but I was at a very high achieving school. So most people did, felt the pressure. Um, I did like a college tour at a local college and they had this like career fair, but for majors. And so you could walk around and um, talk to different people. And I came across the communication science and disorders table and 
they really sold me on the diversity of the field, how much of a generalist you are whenever you graduate and how there's such diversity in the age ranges and the types of communication and speech disorders that you can serve. Um, I think something that really got me interested is if you get bored, you can just do something different, but still within the same field. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was always had a lot of energy and worried about getting a little burnt out. Um, and even then, uh, it was like this connection between that. And um, of course, like a lot of us, I had speech therapy when I was in grade school for my R's up until third grade. I was the adorable wabbit child. And then (laughs) um, (laughs) that coupled with, uh, so I have scoliosis. I was diagnosed at age 10 and I wore a back brace from 10 to 16, my formative years with a back brace on. It's real cute. Um, and then <laughs> when I was 16, I ended up getting a full spinal fusion. So that all of my care from the age of 10 on was at Shriners Hospital in St. Louis. And Shriners Hospital are, um, it's like a complete volunteer hospital. All the, you know, there's people who work there who are paid, but all of the surgeons and the specialists um, are volunteering their time and energy. And they, they specialize in bones. And so there's a lot of cleft lip and palate repair. There's a lot of uh, scoliosis, of course. And those were some of the clinics that were happening. And I went every few months for six years. So I saw and met a lot of those kids and would go back every few months. And we would see each other at our follow-up appointments. And you spend the entire day there because, of course, there's no schedule because you're getting everything for free. So you're at the mercy of when they're available. Um, and even upon recovery, when I was in the hospital um, for, sorry about that. When I was in the no hospital worries. for sorry, my spinal fusion, Nicole's my cat's butt cat's butt just like breaks <laughs> <on> the screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. Why are you so cute? Uh-huh. Anyway, you were waiting at the hospital. <laughs> Keep your butt out of this. You're not invited. I'll put her on my lap. Yeah. Um, I just, I met a lot of people early on who had like cleft lip palate and it Mm. wasn't something that I had any idea what it was. And so like those pieces just kind of all came together um, when I went to the career or the the major fair and learned more about what they did. Um, And then when I actually got into my undergrad, um, like my undergrad coursework, which I didn't do for a while. I was not ready to go to college. I was a flight attendant for a while. I like worked in food service. I was a bartender. <laughs> like I did so many things, everything I could before I actually went to college, um, traveled a whole bunch, was into a lot of things other than school. By the time I got to school, uh, getting at my school, you weren't just accepted into your undergrad. You had, or into communication sciences and disorder. You, you actually had to apply to do that as your undergrad. So that was competitive as well. Um, And then when we got into it, uh, I just fell in love with the neurology. Like the human brain is such a puzzle. And so that was like my big draw to stay in it and not go audiology instead of speech pathology. So you mentioned that you worked in neurogenic speech or acquired speech and language disorders. So you were always from the beginning interested in that. Yeah. um, That part. Definitely which I would have never said I was interested in science before <laughs> going to school for speech pathology. Like I did it cause we had to in school, but it wasn't something I was super into, but we didn't have like neurology in um, high school. <laughs> yeah. The neurology really got me. Definitely. That's cool. We kind of alluded to 
you're kind of doing something a little bit different now, right? We talked about like you're doing, you did speech, yada, yada. And now you, you're at, you're doing the undead <laughs> voice and, and you kind of feel a little like, like this, not, I don't want to call it disjointed from the field, but like, you know, there was a, a time where you, there was movement. We'll call it that. So maybe sure. it was lateral. Maybe it was a, you know, either way. Do you feel now that you had a little bit of like outside in perspective, what are your, what are your general thoughts of the field of speech language pathology and the direction it's heading? Uh, we can even go with a, like, uh, you can sandwich it with, you know, like a like criticism, like, <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> the but, hamburger uh, effect. But, yeah, the hamburger hamburger effect. yeah. So tell that me was a little really bit good about try. Modify the tongue this way. And then, Oh my God, that was a great. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think like most things in the pandemic and not to like belabor that point, but my partner is immunocompromised. So like the pandemic for us has really been isolation. Like we still do not eat indoors anywhere or go inside anywhere without an N95 mask. Like, so we're still very much isolated. So I feel kind of inside a bubble. And it was at the same time that I um, quit both my positions and started doing my own my own company. So I I don't have a lot of connection in recent years with the field at large. I have a lot of friends who are still SLPs who I talk to regularly and two of them I'm helping build their own like SLP businesses. So I still stay in the mindset because I like guest blog for or I like ghost blog for one of them as well. So I'm talking about like child development, though I haven't touched it in a bit. Um uh, so I don't I don't actually have a strong identity as a speech pathologist right now. I will say opinions on the field in general. I mean, I love the field. I love like I get to live vicariously through my brother. I've gone to like all of his. I'm always asking like, what are you learning or what were you doing and what are your projects and how is the like rehab that you're working at? And he'll ask me questions about you know what do you think about this case? And so I get to kind of tap back into that skill set or that passion area. Um, but I would, I don't have a strong opinion on the direction the field is heading. I'm curious. I am very curious about the direction the field is heading. If it's, if there's, um, big things happening, I don't know them, but I would love to know. Them. <laughs> um, I'd say criticism. I mean, it's not necessarily my criticism cause I'm, I'm not personally hitting a lot of this, but I think vicariously through hearing other people in the field talk about, uh, criticisms, it would probably just be that sometimes frustrations around legalities, licensure, state lines, um, forces beyond our control, um, impacting our ability to provide the best care for patients. I think that's, you know, it could be as easy as being denied services or being dictated how rate and frequency by insurance companies. I just think that a lot of times, most speech pathologists, I would say all of us, why not? All speech pathologists got into the field to do good. And I think any time where your ability to do your job is hindered by legislature or by uh, red tape or paperwork or burnout is going to be um, frustrating. And I don't know, um, you know, what it's like for the day-to-day -day SLP right now. My most recent um, touch of that was now three years ago. So hopefully it's going in a better direction. You two would be able to tell me more than I 
could think of. Um, I'm not getting personally a lot of like frustrations with the field because I've demedicalized my program enough that I'm not having to really jump those hurdles personally. And then a positive, <laughs> um, I think, you know, culturally, and hopefully this is reflected in the field as well, that as the lines of gender continue to blur or uh, as there's just more awareness and representation in every field that things will continue to diversify and more voices that are marginalized can be heard in a way that impacts the masses or impacts um, the way of doing things to make it a little bit more inclusive. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a positive, a critique and a positive. It's probably a few of each <laughs> thrown in there. <laughs> good balance. Good balance. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. What is it like? I mean, you two are both doing it. The daily grind. <laughs> oh. What do you think? Like, what is, tell me. It's so, uh, I can't. Mm. <laughs> tell, tell you yeah. what the problem is with speech pathology or well, what's I mean, good Not the problem. <laughs> More so like, is my, is my interpretation, does it resonate? Is it like off base? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it's like. I don't day -to -day. know what the, <laughs> you know, to be honest, like, I believe there is a, a world out there that mm -hmm. specifically like on social media, for instance, that ha that pushes the field further along and, and the, the way that we hope it would travel. Um, and, and that push is very immediate and that push, it has a sense of urgency to it that mm -hmm. exists and is tangible. I feel, you know, and we, and you can hear the voices and you can see the faces that represent that change. Um, I'm not sure if there, that has fully, you know, moved toward not just clinical practice, but also like in, when it comes to academia. Um, and I, you know, of course it's going to be more immediate because of that sense of urgency on social media. But my feeling is that the rest is, slowly catching up <laughs> and that you can you can decide how what the you know how to define slowly um but what what do you think natalie <laughs> well i i think i have a similar a similar thought as you hector but maybe a little bit different okay. um i definitely see the whole social media push that you're talking about about changing and trying to diversify the field but then in the in the real world, I don't necessarily think that that is translating. I think that there are discussions being made, but it's a big field and a lot of issues with it, you know. But if you're just talking about diversity, let's just like narrow in our focus to diversity. I think that there's just, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, you know, I, I tend to be Pollyanna-ish about a lot of things. Like I'm always looking for the connection and how everyone can kind of be together. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Hector, you know what I mean? I was oh, like, I Let's do. How, I do. how can we connect? Um, yeah. Instead of division, I am always looking for the, the thread of connection. I think that it's really hard to find sometimes. Um, and, and while social media is helpful, I don't think that that's going to really push push our profession forward. Um, I think it's having conversations and talking to people in real life, you know, and the, sometimes the closest I can get is this podcast is just like having I was gonna say, real conversations, <laughs> right? Um, you know, yeah. because social media is so immediate, it's also immediately gone. 
You know, people right. yeah. are scrolling through their phones and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to have a comment here. But I think real, you know, real attitudes change when we when we talk about it, um, you know, and in our next episode, when, when we talk, you know, talk to Nicole a little bit more about what they do in, in their profession, we, you know, we get into this conversation about like, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but I think that we need to have uncomfortable conversations which, and I think speech pathologists are kind of bad at that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> yes, kind of bad at yes. that, but I think that that's, what's going to push us forward. Yeah. Pushing our boundaries um, a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of speech pathologists are very solution driven, right? Cause we are right. trying to solve problems yeah. a lot. And I, I think there is often a discomfort that comes with questions that don't have answers. And so sometimes mm-hmm. a question doesn't have an immediate answer, but just because yeah. it doesn't have an answer, doesn't mean that it's not valid or that it shouldn't continue to be asked. Right. It just means you have to keep asking it mm-hmm. until there's an answer that does work. And there's what you said brought up like a memory. <laughs> um, there's this quote that I read recently that really resonates with me and exactly what you're talking about, Natalie. And it's, um, I just pulled it up while you were saying this. So I could say it to, to you if it's interesting, but um, it's by Paul Graham and it's on the importance of being at least a little bit contrarian. And it says, let's start with a test. Do you have any opinions that you would be reluctant to express in front of a group of your peers? If the answer is no, you might want to stop and think about that. If everything you believe is something you're supposed to believe, could that possibly just be a coincidence? Odds are it isn't. Odds are you're just used to thinking whatever you're told. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah. I feel like That's yes. Yeah. <laughs> I totally yep. get that. I think um I think one of the biggest it's scary to have thoughts. Totally. Like, it's scary to have thoughts and ideas that are uh, you know in opposition to your peers, but exactly what you're saying if you don't the needle never moves. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, especially if you are like a part of such a like a homogenous population. Like I I can say for me as like um as a, a person of color and a queer person, like any time that like people start to question our field, I am high key there for it because I'm like, yeah, let's challenge the status quo, <laughs> mostly because I don't fit the status quo. So I don't have any connection or like I don't have any investment in us saying, yeah, SLPs don't really have to be doing that. You know, like, I'm like, yeah, great. You know, and so because <laughs> like, that's awesome. Let's challenge that. Um, but I also doesn't think, challenge like, your pri- it doesn't threaten your privilege. I because I don't have it. You know, I don't have <laughs> yeah. it. In this yeah. field, you know, I'm like, I'm like, well, who else is gonna like, let's yeah. look into that looking glass, you know, I mean, into that glass bowl. Anyway, um, but I also think it's an interesting observation that I've seen with SLPs is when you talk about like problem solving, right? They're so solution driven. SLPs don't like to not be part of the solution. They love to be part of, of to be part of that. And so part a lot, a lot of the change that we want requires us to get out of the way so that others who are disenfranchised or not part of that right now can actually have a yeah. have that voice at the table, you know? And so that's 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 a hard a hard challenge. It's a hard like you have the Mm-hmm. Look at yourself and be like, where is my role in all of this? And sometimes it's like to yeah. not have one. Well, <laughs> I, I, I guess, correct me if I'm if I'm missing the mark, Hector. But mm-hmm. when you say get out of the way, I, I, I almost don't think it's about getting out of the way as much as 
being present and letting others speak and not feeling like you have to be the first one, you know, because you're solutions driven, you want to help. Right. And that's another thing is like, I've always, you know, I always want to make sure that people who are there wanting to help don't, you know, don't feel bad about wanting to help. Right. But, but, you know, sometimes helping is not doing anything. Correct. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. It's no, not I'm about not getting saying, out of the way, right? It's not about getting out of the way, but it, it, it's about like checking where your desire to help is coming from. Is it a savior? Is it an ableist? Is it like if you're really there to like see the, the movement move forward, which is great. Like you said, it's about like, okay, how do we do this then so that we can uplift those that might need some support? You know, and so like being aware of mm-hmm. where your desire to be part of this is coming from. Uh, one, it actually like shows true authenticity, like and and transparency when it comes to these cer- certain things, especially when it comes to like diversity and inclusion. Like sometimes it feels so forced yeah. upon, you know, and I get that. Like people are like, this mm-hmm. is what we do. And I'm like, yep, that's what we're aiming for. But like, where do, in, in a field mm-hmm. that is so predominantly white, like how do we then, we don't just, you know, say, okay, 50% of you need to leave the field. <laughs> you know, that's not how this works. We need to figure out how, how do we get all of us to buy in authentically, but also like allow space mm-hmm. To, to navigate yeah. that transition. And it's so interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And I interpret what you're saying the same, right? So like Hector, you say, get out of the way. And then Natalie, you're saying, don't actually leave, just right. let other voices speak first. Like, and yes. that's, I interpret that being the same, like you have the same idea. Yeah, it's kind of the same, you know, and I think that um, people need to be there to hear it, but you need to let people say it. Right. And you need to, you know, and, and, you know, we talk about cultural humility. You need to also have the humility to accept what someone is saying and not take it so personally. Right. Um, which That's is a an, huge ongo- thing, an right? ongoing thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and Hector, while you were talking, I started to think about, you know, when we were talking about social media a few minutes ago, you know, and I feel like this is, this is another reason that we need to be careful about social media because you were asking about, you know, why do people do it? And, I've gotten to the point where when I see people say things on social media, it seems more performative. Like you're, Mm. you're talking about diversity online because it's sort of like the topic du jour. Yeah. Your quotes again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to have to, you should have like a, but like a, like a, like a, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I, and I'm sure that not all people are are doing that in a performative way, but that's sort of how I, how I've started to interpret it. Yeah. So I want to hear people really talk about it. Right. And especially as as it relates to them, you know, we we know what the statistics are, but like I would love to hear, like, to be honest, like from a an ally from. A, a, a white cis person i'm like so how does this relate to you and what is what how are we going to actually talk about what needs to happen like we know right. like numbers wise what needs to happen we know policy wise what needs to happen but i'm also like you're in this field like yeah what what you know that's the conversation that would be great to hear because i i already know mm-hmm. for me as a brown queer person i'm like i know what needs to happen but 
that's, you know, that's beyond me now. So, but anyway, back to Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Great conversation. Well, I have a, I have a question for both of you. Okay. (laughs) Earlier we were talking about, um, you know, having to sort of have a, a flexibility in your brain kind of thing for change to happen. Do you feel like as queer people, maybe we are more flexible with our thinking because we have to be like Hector, you sort of like touched on this topic, but I would love to hear what Nicole thinks too. Yes. I think we're probably more flexible in our thinking um, and, and recognizing that, you know, there's a diversity of um, experiences, but I think sometimes we end up siloed and uh, those who affirm us. And so we extrapolate that to the rest of the world that it might not be true. Like I was saying earlier, like where I live now on the West Coast, very affirming. When I go back home, I'm just like, what is this? Don't you all, what? You don't even know what trans means? Like, what are you talking about? For example, I wore, I have a t-shirt that has a little, um, has a little tombstone on it. This is RIP gender roles. And we had family in town for our wedding. And, you know, one of those individuals is just very conservative and, and does is not very educated on diversity in general, or definitely not on um, gender diversity. And they said, RIP gender roles. I don't get it. What are those new genders now? Like, isn't it, isn't it she, he, or she, her, he, him? And I was like, what? They're like, RIP, like, what is that gender? And I'm like, no, what? No, it means rest in peace, gender roles. It's just, so I think, yes, there's, I feel hopeful, you know, I feel more flexible than that individual and a lot of people I grew up with in my thinking. And, but also the silo of, you know, most of the people I surround myself think with, think similarly. And it might be, it's kind of related to Hector, what you were saying about like seeing the a push of a certain group of people on social media gives you hope that that push is trans or gives you a question on whether that push is translating. And it's, that would be the disconnect, right? Like is that, or is the voice of that group translating to anything outside of that group or yeah. specifically around social media? We are all algorithm wise, only fed ideas and thoughts that and articles and research and, and news outlet in general that supports our interests. So we don't ever actually see the other side. And so ex- what you were saying, Natalie, I agree. It's extremely important to get off of social media, like, like feel affirmed in your ideas through social media, but get out of it, get out of that bubble to actually have conversations with people who think differently from you because they're seeing their own new silo that has nothing to do with yours as well. And it's only in person to person like communication that any of those ideas can cross the barrier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, (laughs) My, my answer is very similar in the sense that um, I, I think it was, I mean, it was during pandemic when all of the conversations, I mean, specifically around race that were happening and then that book white privilege came out and all of these things started happening. Right. And that is from my perspective, that's when I started to see people start to question things more, you know? And so like, I was so used to having that flexible thinking as a, you know, person of multi marginalized status that, um, I really did think that like, Oh, it, it was so hard for me to understand why other people didn't have that flexible. And like, it's, it's, you know, like when you're just so forced to doing it, that you, you couldn't figure out the why until I figured out that it was because of privilege 
that people didn't have to be flexible. You know, like if, if mm-hmm. you have, if you're in a position of power, why would you have to think about other perspectives if, if yours is the dominant one? And so, and I, or why would you make that voice loud so that it tears down your privilege? Exactly. So I, I had a hard time with that, you know, to be honest, because I had friends that would be like, so why would we care? Why should we care about trans rights? You know, like that's such a small group within the general population. And for me, I was like, well, duh, because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, But it wasn't until this kind of like cultural shift that happened in the, United States specifically, that people started to question privilege a little bit more outright. And there was actually a call to it, it, remember, like it was like, it's not enough to be, you know, not racist. So you had to be like anti-racist, you know, like, so there was a, you yeah. have to, you can't just acknowledge these things, you know? And so it almost also translated to like, you have to have flexible thinking, you know, you have to use critic, which includes critical thinking skills. Right. And so for me, um, short answer. I mean, long answer, long story short. I mean, ugh, <laughs> long answer, that. longer, long answer, longer. Um, yeah, I've always feel like I've <laughs> That's been my dad fle- always says. <laughs> yeah, long answer, longer. I feel like I've always been a flexible thinker because of my marginalized status, because it, it was, a, it's a way to be, to survive. You have to be able to like think more ways out than, than most just to like protect yourself. Yeah. I- I, especially what you're saying about like the pandemic kind of brought to light that there's more nuance than just like white and black or people of color and white people there's, or just like feminism. Like there, there's, there's so much nuance within there's everybody like intersectionality is very real. We all have multiple um, intersections of our identity. And even within feminism, for example, like white women needed to get the fuck out of the way for a moment and let, (laughs) like people of color speak up within the trans community. Like they do a really, really great job of highlighting people of color's voice and their experience as trans folks, as opposed to just the white experience of trans transness. And so there's um, even within the silos, more silos mm-hmm. uh, of voices that need to be pushed to the top. And thankfully, hopefully nationally we have. So again, this is something that I don't know if I just feel this way or if it's really happened. Right that there's more awareness of the nuances and of intersectionality with identity, or if that's something that there's more awareness of in the social circle that I have or in the geographical region that I live in, but it's not actually like generalized to the general public in the U S unknown. Well, you know, without taking a poll, but just (laughs) speaking on with, you know, take a no no polls of the U S as an entire nation, but, um, (laughs) that would be costly. (laughs) So, um, in 2020, uh, my now wife and I moved from an urban area, the Seattle, um, Metro area to a rural area. So we're living in my, my small hometown, um, maybe 9,000 people. Um, and you know, growing up in this town, I knew how conservative it was, how judgmental it was, how dangerous it was, you know, for queer people and people of color. Um, it's not perfect, but I do see change. Um, when we moved here, people welcomed us with open arms, mm-hmm. you know, being an openly gay couple. And we've met numerous other gay people in this town 
that are open, you know, open. Um, you know, I drive around my town and I pass at least four pride flags on my way to the grocery store. This is not the town that I grew up in. Right. And it's still a small rural town. And I think that, you know, change can be slow, but change can happen. I see it. Um, and I think that there's reason for hope just from what I've observed. Um, and there's my Pollyanna sort of. I love it. <laughs> I love it, for but, it. Yes. But I'm, you know, I'm looking again, I'm looking for those threads of connection and, and I see yeah. them happening. Um, you know, and I think that, I, you know, I lived in Seattle for a really long time and it's a very liberal city and there it's, it's very homogenous in its political stances and it's, you know, and so like I was, I never really, you know, like you were saying, Nicole, you you didn't get like a full picture of like was like boop boop out there. <laughs> air quotes. Answer air quotes. <laughs> you know, and and I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't either. I was living in a liberal bubble for you know a long time, and um, moving back to uh, an area that I would say is is kind of more purple, like this mix um, of liberal and conservative, but that's saying a lot for my small town right? <laughs> that I grew up in that yeah. was definitely a red area of New York state um, when I was a kid. And so I, don't know, I think, I think things do change and this is maybe where social media does help because everyone has hmm. access to it. Everyone um, has access. Yeah, it, yeah. It's to bring it, to bring it full circle. Yeah. The, half the trans folks in the U S live in the South, like, well, and what does the South mean? But the, we'll say the U S South and mm-hmm. there's, you know, statistically just less affirming States, <laughs> um, in the Southern part of our country. And so access to like healthcare that's affirming is so difficult. And specifically when it comes to speech pathology, the amount of speech pathologists who are specialized in gender affirming voice, and then also available vocal take insurance, it's going to be a lot more difficult for somebody in a rural setting to find a community or find resources. And so, yeah, the internet and social media makes it really um, accessible. The people who I'm, the voices that I'm not able to hear in my Seattle <laughs> liberal bubble um, are very loud online. And before anybody joins my program, I'm having a you know 15 to 30 minute conversation with them about their experience with their voice, what they've tried so far. And more often than not, like they're running through um, their concerns and they tend to center around like I don't have an affirming household or I'm not, you know, socially transitioned and I don't know how I'm going to practice. I'm worried for my safety. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. very real roadblocks in place to even pursuing voice transition, even though it's like technically quite non-invasive, right? It's not surgery. We're not looking for um, a lot of approval through like different psychologist letters, like all of the hurdles that, you know, typically have to be jumped to do something. And even then it's still a lot of roadblocks to getting affirming care. And so I think like specifically online resources are the way of the future when it comes to healthcare. And I'm glad that they exist for the gender nonconforming community and I'm hopeful that there's just so much more of them in the future. <laughs> hmm. Fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight. Um, <laughs> Fighting so, the good fight. which is a, it's a great fight, you know, uh, it's a worthy cause because um, 
something to be proud of, which means brings me to my next question, <laughs> which is a question we ask every episode. Um, it's a oh, okay. yeah, it's a simple question. Um, you know, because we call it right our, and wrong answer. Uh, I don't think so. Um, it's whatever it, <laughs> whatever it means to you. But like as um, our series is called the Proud Professional Series, we we often talk about what it means to be a proud professional, you know, in your own way. Um, so what does that mean to you? Like, cause your, your role is ever evolving, but as a person of the community, but also as somebody who is a speech language pathologist, but also is, you know, performing other business owner. Yeah. All of that. What does that mean to you as a, what does that mean? I think the meaning probably continues to evolve as well. Right now. Uh, I feel very privileged to be able um, to be open about my identity and not feel uh, as though it's affecting me negatively, professionally or personally. And I think I identify much more with the community that I'm part of and that I serve than I do with my profession. And uh, being a proud professional uh, on a day-to-day just makes me feel extremely connected to each person that I'm meeting and makes me feel um, authentic in my communication. Like I, um, I don't feel like there's an undiscovered part of myself that I'm hiding or anything that I'm, that's keeping me from hearing somebody's experience and empathizing with them, which is really important. I probably cry every single day. Super fun to cry today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talking through happy and sad tears always. Today was happy tears. You know, um, I think I'm, this might not be the way that you're asking it, but I, I feel most pride as a proud professional. That's the term, right? I feel most pride. Um, when I hear stories of the people that I work with feeling affirmed in their gender through their voice. So like, Oh, I got gendered correctly. I'm a nurse. And none of my today, the story was um, that I cried about (laughs) is I had in my program, I have people email me like their communication opportunities that they're going to use their uh, transitioning voice in throughout the day, kind of like an accountability thing. And then I have them email me at the end of the day and tell me how it went. And so the end of the day email Um, was I'm an ICU nurse and my goal was to use my voice with three different patients today. And all of those patients gendered me correctly without question. They didn't even have my physical appearance to go on. I had a mask on and scrubs. And so, you know, it was completely based on my voice and that felt phenomenal. Um, That was exciting. There was also the time where then the coworker came in and misgendered this individual and they could see the confusion on the patient, the patient's family's face even though that was uncomfortable and awkward, they still felt more affirmed because they could see that they saw it as an incongruence with how they sounded. (laughs) Um, So again, I think I answer a question and then go way left. So uh, (laughs) how to bring that one back around. I, I guess it just like, I want to acknowledge my privilege. That's kind of where it all settles for me. I feel very privileged that I don't fear for my safety on a day-to-day basis based on my identity and that I can be out. (laughs) I don't know a better word for it out professionally and personally and um, 
still feel like those people in my life value those parts of me as well. Oh, I had like chills when you were talking about that ICU nurse moment because I don't, I think it's very rare. I I think it's rare that any SLP, especially within the queer community, solely serves the entire population that also is part of the LGBTQ plus community. Like that's such a, that's such a, such a, um, a thing like that. I don't even, I can't even think of the word, but it's, it's so aff- affirming, right? Cause you're just like, these are my people, you know, like every single one of them. Yeah. Um, and it's, so I, I'm sure. That's what I, it feels like. It's yeah. like, yeah. And you're, I don't, your community. I don't like, yeah. And as much as I <laughs> probably shouldn't professionally, I kind of throw that out the window. I'm like besties with everybody. <laughs> like, okay. So like what's going on? Because you know, the, the more comfortable I am with them, the more they know me and the more I know them, which they probably know way too much about me and a quote unquote air quotes, bing, professional <laughs> level. Um, the more comfortable we feel with each other, the more I get to know them, the faster and more effectively I can help them find their authentic voice through all of the cultural stereotypes that they've, you know, in, unconsciously been ingrained in them about how they should sound and the faster I can give them feedback and they can trust me and I can be more blunt about like, okay, cool. But you're, you know, like, let's try this. Let's try like change this up, et cetera. But yeah, the first person that I ever took on professional or um, per, as like a, in private practice myself was somebody who was in their last year of med school. She is awesome completely transitioned her voice during the last uh, year of med school. And her goal was that or it was last year of her residency, but that she would hundred percent of the time by the end of our, you know, coaching training, be able to use her voice full time with patients. Absolutely. There star student sounds phenomenal. If I had a clip, I would show you her voice like amazing, <laughs> really dedicated. And the idea that you can go through a voice transition that's, you know, takes a lot of practice while also finishing your residency. Like she was committed and in, in a way that she probably benefited from all of the structure and accountability you have to do, have to become a doctor and <laughs> just applied it to voice. So, um, but yeah, working within the community that I'm a part of is like, it just feels like fun every day. It doesn't feel like work when I'm not, you know, today, most of my day was curriculum development, which is singular. And I'm just like sitting on my couch doing it. But I also felt connected because I can see like how the impact that when I, the intro course that I'm writing can have and all of those different pieces. Thankfully I don't have to do a lot of paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Not a wood. (laughs) (sighs) Well, anything else? Wrap us up, Natalie. No, not on my end. Wrap us up. Tune in for next episode. Right, honestly. So, yeah, everyone. Tune in for next episode where we talk about all of the shit. No, it's not shit. (laughs) Um, It's not. (laughs) um, Yeah, everybody. So, this is just your intro to Nicole. We're going to have them back next time to talk more about their um online program for um trans and non-binary folks so please come back and learn yeah, more about sure. nicole <laughs> learn about nicole, nicole and the undead the undead voice 
um, go ahead and yes. check it out ahead of time if you'd like. But Nicole, um, undeadvoice.com. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. And then uh, what about on socials, on Insta? Um, all my socials are undead.voice. <laughs> oh, perfect. I love uh, that. <laughs> my TikTok is where I've been focusing most recently, but that is, I was very proud. I'm at over 40K followers on that guy. <gasps> nice. Get out. TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> we yeah. haven't done that. We haven't done that yet. No. But. <laughs> I think that's it. All righty. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at thequeerslp. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.